So this is uh, understanding your religion, the seven major doctrines that define the Christian uh, faith. This is lesson number 16 in the series. And today we're going to do the sub-doctrine of justification. And this is part two of the sub-doctrine of justification. And it is entitled Becoming Acceptable. And for those of you who are new in this, uh, in this particular class, I, I do do a little bit of a review to kind of get you into what exactly are we talking about here. So, so far in this, in this course, we've said that the major, you know, there are seven major doctrines. We, we kind of tick them all off. And um, well, the first five anyways. And we said that when we got to the fifth major doctrine, which is the doctrine of reconciliation, how God reconciles man back to himself, okay? how he renews that relationship. When we got to explaining that fifth major doctrine, that fifth major doctrine was explained using 10 sub-doctrines. Okay? And so we've been in the middle of studying those 10 sub-doctrines that explain the doctrine of reconciliation. So we said that the first five sub-doctrines, the doctrine of election, which explains the fact that God chooses, God chooses Christ to be the one to accomplish that reconciliation. The sub-doctrine of predestination teaches that God knew in advance that His plan would work. Why? Because God knows the end from the beginning. The sub-doctrine of atonement explained how the reconciliation was accomplished. Jesus pays for our sins so that we can be reconciled to God. The sub-doctrine of redemption explains what happens because of atonement. What happens because of, of atonement? We're free. Before we were prisoners, we were condemned, but now we're free. We're free for what? Well, that's what the fifth sub-doctrine explains. We're free to be renewed. New creatures in Christ. Okay? So I we explained these first five sub-doctrines and I said to you that these five sub-doctrines, this is the plan of salvation. Okay? If someone says to you, well, what's God's plan of salvation? And I've said this before. People say, oh, the plan of salvation, I know what that is. You have to hear the gospel. You have to believe the gospel. You have to repent of your sins. You have to be baptized. You have to live faith. You know, confess Christ to be baptized. That's the plan of salvation. I can't emphasize this enough. That is not the plan of salvation. God's plan to save man is this here. He chooses Christ. He knows that Christ will accomplish His task. Christ dies on the cross to pay for our sins. We're free because of His death on the cross and we are regenerated, born again because of what He's done. That's the plan. Okay? that we believe, that we repent, that we're baptized, that's our response to the plan. Okay? So for a long time we've got, the, you know, we've got the cart before the horse here. So when you're sharing the gospel with someone you have to first tell them, what did God do for you? Well, this is what God did for you. And when the person says, well, what do I do? Okay, let me explain to you your response to that. Your response is a response of faith. And that faith is expressed how? Repentance, baptism, faithful living, so on and so forth. All right. Then I said the next five sub-doctrines, okay, 
describe God's plan of salvation from five different viewpoints. Okay. For example, the sixth sub-doctrine is the doctrine of adoption. And it explains the plan of salvation from a human perspective. In other words, how God has adopted us as sons and daughters now that we are free from sin and condemnation uses the language of adoption. Mostly in the book of Romans, Paul does that. You know, it's like, uh, uh, let's say somebody's describing me, okay? Well, that person could describe me as a father, a grandfather, a minister, a son. You know, I'm the same person, but you're looking at me from different perspectives. And that would be the same for anyone here. Well, this is the idea here. The Bible or the Bible writers look at the plan of salvation from five different viewpoints, always looking at the same thing, just describing it with different words and different images. So the, the, the second five sub-doctrines explain the plan of salvation from different perspectives. So the sixth one, adoption. The, se the seventh one is looking at the plan of salvation from a legal perspective. Okay? And the doctrine that looks at the plan of salvation from a legal perspective is called the doctrine of justification. Okay? So last week we said that God judges from, last week we said, as I began to explain the sub-doctrine of justification, I said that God judges from an absolute standard. Okay? God establishes the law and it's absolute. And man's problem is that he cannot plead ignorance. He can't say to God, well, I need to go to heaven because I didn't know the law and I didn't know what was wrong and I was ignorant. And I told you that doesn't even, that doesn't even pass muster here on earth with, earth with human laws, which many of which are fallible and perhaps unfair, but it doesn't, you, know, you can't get away from the law here on earth by saying, well, I didn't know. I didn't know I had to pay my taxes by April, whatever. You know, try telling that to the IRS. It doesn't work. Well, <clears throat> ignorance is also not an excuse that will absolve you from God's law as well, because Paul says in Romans that um, uh, we're without excuse because uh, his nature and, and everything about God is seen in his creation. So we have an exterior witness, an external witness. The creation is there to teach us that there is a God. And we also have an internal witness. That's the, our conscience tells us there's things that are right and things that are wrong. So we're without excuse. And then even if we know the law, even if we know that if you sin, you die, if, even if we know the law, the problem is we're helpless. We can't obey those commands, well, obey them perfectly. So man is in a real bind. If he's ignorant of the law, he's condemned. If he knows the law, he can't live up to it, he's condemned. So the doctrine of justification explains how God resolves this legal dilemma in reconciling guilty sinners according to His law without breaking or compromising His law. Look, I look here and I see most people here are parents, right? The law is, if you don't eat your supper, you don't get any ice cream, because we've got ice cream for dessert. You've got to finish your green beans. You know, we've all been through that rigmarole, haven't we? 
What happens if you, you, if you yourself say, oh, forget about that law for tonight. You didn't eat your green beans. You only ate half your mashed potatoes. Well, you can have the ice cream anyway. What happens then? Try to get him to eat the green beans next time, right? You got to stick with the rules with kids because they know how to get around them, right? Well, you know, in a, in a more perfect way, imagine if God said, ah, you're a sinner, you know, you've broken all the law. Ah, forget that. Come on in anyways. Yeah, he can't compromise his law. The, the problem is, how does he reconcile us back to himself without compromising his own rules? The doctrine of justification explains that. Now, we started that last, last time, uh, last week, last, or rather. So man needs God's approval to be at peace with himself and with God. The problem is how do we regain this approval? How do we measure up to his standard and become acceptable to him once again? Now throughout history there have been various attempts to meet this fundamental need, this need to be acceptable to God. All right. Man has invented various ways to deal with his inadequacy before the supreme being. For example, there's the primitive sacrificial system um, in a lot of ancient cultures. The giving of something, whether it's produce or animals, even children. Right? The Canaanites would, would put their children through the fire, they would call it. They would burn their own children to the god Molech in order to be right with the supreme God. And they would do this to satisfy the anger or the appetites of the gods. Now let's not confuse this with the Jewish sacrificial system, which God Himself used and only for a limited time to prepare the world for Christ's coming and ministry. It was a teaching mechanism. You know, the Jews understood that their system merely represented their expressions of thanksgiving and repentance and joy and hope. But they also knew that these sacrifices didn't really take away sin. They were, uh, they were uh, expressions of thanksgiving. In Hebrews 10 verse uh, 3 and 4, um, the writer says, but in, the, in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins year by year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So the Jews knew that the bulls and goats and sheep, thousands and thousands and thousands of them they were offering up, they knew that those things didn't really atone for their sins. They were actually underlining that they were sinners before God. And that sins could only be taken away by blood. Okay. So the Gentiles, of course, they offered sacrifices thinking that their actions actually manipulated the gods. The Jews never thought this. For example, they figured more sacrifice, more rain. We want rain. We offered a thousand sheep. Let's offer five thousand sheep. Maybe we'll get rain. Or they would offer their children in order to protect the land, the ultimate sacrifice. So primitive religions saw sacrificial systems as a way of making peace with their gods in some way. Another of man's attempts to justify himself, law-keeping. Now the most familiar example of this that we know of is, well, the Jews themselves later on. Some, not all, but some Jews believed and still do 
that the way to be acceptable before God is to keep the ceremonial or the moral law. I mentioned this before, I was speaking to a woman once, she was a Jew, and she said, I don't need Jesus. I said, really? She said, I don't need Jesus. I don't need somebody to die for my sins. I said, oh really? Yeah, she said, because I obey the law. Really, you do? Yes. And in her mind, she obeyed the law. But in her mind, the law was you know, to the synagogue and the ceremonies, doing them correctly. In her mind, that, that, that was the law. Of course, the version of the law that the Jews, especially the Jews we read about in the New Testament, the version of the law that they kept was very different than what was given by Moses. For example, they watered down the moral law to suit their purpose and they manipulated the ceremonial law to their liking so that in their minds they were actually obeying the law perfectly. And when Jesus comes along, a lot of what we see in the New Testament is that Jesus kind of reveals or exposes their hypocrisy. For example, in Matthew 5, 27, 28, you know, he says that adultery begins in the heart, not just if someone actually has sex with another man's wife, as the Jews had interpreted. You know, the commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. The Jews, especially the Pharisees, a lot of them thought, oh, that means I don't have sex with another Jewish man's legal wife. And if I don't do that, then I've kept that, I've kept that law. Now I can divorce my wife if I want to and marry another one and, and just keep divorcing and marrying again if I get tired of her. I can have sex with a Gentile. I can have sex with a slave. That doesn't count. So you see, they, 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 had, they had their own view of what the law was and what they were keeping and felt self-righteous about it. So Jesus comes along and He says, you think you're keeping the law? You've heard that it was said, I shall not commit adultery? And then He says, but I say to you, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery in your heart. So He kind of nails where the sin is. The sin is, if you look at a woman other than your wife and begin to desire her sexually and continue to do so, you've broken that command. So he, you know, in the Sermon on the Mount, when he's talking to the Pharisees, that's what he's doing. He's nailing them, bang, bang, bang. You know, he's always saying, oh, you think you know the law? Let me show you what the law really says in order to expose their hypocrisy. That's why they hated him. Okay. So they understood correctly that if you obeyed the law perfectly, you would be acceptable before God. But they did not correctly perceive how demanding God's law really was. You know, it's like the bar is like you know, a thousand feet up. You know? And so what they did is they brought the bar down to maybe a foot high so that they could get over the bar. That, that, that's what was happening. So this form of self-justification was also present in the early church. As some teachers began to teach a form of ascetic Christianity where people were required to adhere to strict food laws or prohibitions about sex that God had not required. God never required an individual to not marry. Yet there were some that were teaching in the early church that, oh, you're a much better person, or you're a much holier person, you're much more pleasing to God, if you don't marry. 
or if you don't eat meat, or if you abstain from this or that. And Paul, the apostle, rebukes these teachers and this false method of making oneself acceptable before God in the epistle to the Colossians, very important epistle. Later on, this idea took hold in the Roman Catholic Church and monasteries were formed and laws of celibacy were imposed on Catholic clergy in the spirit of this approach to justifying and making oneself pleasing before God. You know, I grew up Catholic, so I kind of understand. In the Catholic family, I remember in my own family, I was an only child, but in other families that had you know, a lot of children, I mean, <laughs> the thinking was that you know, at least one son had to go into the priesthood. You know, and if you had one son that went into the priesthood, somehow everybody was covered. <laughs> And that son that went into the priesthood, that son, he was better than everybody else. He was holier than everybody else. Why? <gasps> he never married. Oh, how could he do that? So it's interesting to note that every other major religion that supports the idea of an absolute code of right and wrong, like Islam, for example, or Judaism, uh, all the major religions, all the other major religions teach in one form or another the principle of law keeping as the way to justify or make yourself acceptable to God. Christianity is the only religion in the world that does not teach this idea. Islam, for example, I mean, forget the jihad and all the military and you know, trouble going on in the world, obviously. Let's just look at it from a theological perspective. In Islam, you're saved, you go to paradise because you do something. You do the pilgrimage, you do the fast at Ramadan, you give the zakat, you know, the, 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 the two percent. You, 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 you pray every day towards Mecca, you do stuff. And if you do stuff and you keep doing the stuff, then you go to paradise if you do the stuff. And the only guarantee for you to go to paradise, even though if you do all that stuff, the only absolute guarantee for you to go to paradise is if you give your life defending Islam. Well, that's just legalism. That's just legalism. That's all it is. Buddhism. Hinduism, Hinduism, you keep getting better as a person, improving yourself. How? Life after life after reincarnated life after life after life until you're good enough to finally be absorbed into the great you know, spirit, the great oneness. What is that? Well, that's just legalism squared. <laughs> At least in Islam, you have that kind of burden just for one lifetime. In Hinduism, you have that burden every time you come back. And by the way, you know why they won't touch the cows, the sacred cows. You know, the cows are wandering around all over the place well, because they believe that's the last station before you go to heaven. You're reincarnated as a cow. Yeah, sure. So I, I'm not making fun of other religions because other people obviously 
hold to these beliefs, but I pity them. I pity them. Their whole life is a life of doing in order to be pleasing to God. Even in Christian sects like Mormonism or the Jehovah Witnesses, the way to become acceptable to God is to know and obey the secrets of that faith and the leaders of the sect itself. I mean, what makes you acceptable is that you belong to the sect. And every sect, every quote Christian sect, whatever it's Jonesville or what, what, it's always the same thing. If you know the secrets of our group and if you belong to the, our little group over here, that's what makes you saved. But true New Testament Christianity is unique in the religious world in the fact that it is the only religion that does not use a form of law keeping or conduct based philosophy in explaining how believers are made acceptable before God. Only biblical Christianity has that feature. Other, other religions may have pomp and ceremony and a, you know, a couple of million people kissing a stone and great picture. You know, it's a great picture for National Geographic, but it's, it's worthless. What does it mean? Nothing. Another way that man has tried to become acceptable or justified before God is through human philosophy. For those who felt the destructive force of sin but suppressed the truth of God's existence, the way of dealing with man's imperfection was through godless philosophy. The ancient philosophers sought for higher levels of understanding and wisdom through efforts at meditation and logic that has continued through the ages. The more man knows and understands, the better he becomes. Listen to, the, listen to the logic and the philosophy of politicians, especially ones that have no use for God or Christianity. What, what is their solution to the world? More education, more knowledge. If you know more and you have more education, let's pour money into this, blah, 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 blah. You'll become a better person. Well, you may become, um, you may become better financially, but you won't necessarily become better morally because I see plenty of rich people kill each other. Magic and occult practitioners try to control the unseen world for the improvement of their lives. That's what that's what the black arts are all about. How, how do I manipulate the spirits for my advantage? I mean, the simplest thing, you know, my lucky whatever. I'm going to the casino with my lucky thing. Really? Because my lucky thing is going to manipulate the spirits so that the slots will be in my favor. Or my, I won't change my socks for, for 10 days. I hit a home run wearing these socks. That's it, man. I've got these socks on. I'm going to wear these socks every time I go up to bat. Superstition. So these various efforts have led to the most recent stage of Western postmodernism where people gave up trying to be better and now have settled for just accepting themselves as they actually are. That's where we're at today. In this way, they don't have to justify themselves to anybody, including God. 
right? That lady there who, who believed she was African American. You know, she was the head of the chapter of the NAACP in a town up in, I don't know, north, up in the Northwest. And then it was found out that she wasn't African American. I mean, she had a fro and the whole thing, but she was a white girl. They showed pictures of her when she was a kid. She had little pigtails. Her parents are white. I mean, really white, you know? <laughs> and they interviewed her. And I, I, I was blowing my mind. They were interviewing her one-on-one -on, -one on ABC, Good Morning America. And the interviewer said, but finally, you know, but your parents are white and you're white. How do you explain the fact that you've been saying that you're an African-American, trying to, trying to get her to say, well, I, I lied. You know what I'm saying? She said, well, that's my truth. Really? I said, she said, that's my truth. And I said, oh dear, you have just compressed the mindset of this generation. This is my truth. It doesn't matter that it flies in the faith, uh, face of objective truth. It's her truth. And how dare you question me on my truth? <laughs> Imagine, uh, really, you know, the only people that don't get that, engineers who build bridges. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> you, you, if you heard an engineer who builds bridges think like that, you wouldn't cross that bridge. You know, we built the bridge. Yeah, I, in, my, in my heart, I feel it's good enough. <laughs> I'll say, well, you go first, buddy. So what has happened is we create our own standard and we simply change it when it doesn't suit us anymore. That's today's generation. That's where we're at. How can I feel acceptable? Well, I'll just be who I am and that'll be good enough, period. All right, so what's God's way to justify man? Human beings can find many ways to justify and make themselves acceptable, but in order to be acceptable before God, He requires that we do this His way, using His method. In His word, God not only reveals His absolute standards and His judgment on uh, those that do not obey his standards, he also reveals the time and method that he has set forth for all men and women to become justified and therefore accept. If you're justified, it means you're acceptable. This is what the doctrine of justification explains. It explains the time and the method for man to become acceptable before God. Here it is, number one. The time is always now. We don't acceptable before we are born. We don't become acceptable after we die. We don't become acceptable after suffering in some purgatory somewhere or after we've been completed, after we've completed so many acts of good deeds in this life or several lifetimes. According to the Bible, the time to be acceptable is always now. Second Corinthians 6, for he says, at the acceptable time I listened to you and on the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So the time to be acceptable, justified, is always right now. Okay. Um, the time to become acceptable to God is when we discovered how He wants us to do it. When we discovered how, then the moment is right now. Secondly, the method is by imputation. 
The method is not by offering sacrifices or law keeping or philosophy. The method is called imputation. The word impute means to consider or to put something onto someone else. An example. Bob Hope, and you, you kind of remember who Bob Hope was, right? He was a great comedian. He's passed away now. But Bob Hope came to Oklahoma Christian University once when they were dedicating a new building. And they brought Bob Hope in you know, to cut the ribbon and make a speech and a, you know, a little PR for this new building. And on that day, the president of the college uh, gave Bob Hope an honorary doctorate degree. It's what they do for speakers and commencement speakers. They give them an honorary uh, doctorate degree. Now, did Bob Hope go to university and you know, write a thesis and defend? No. Did he take any class? No. What happened? The college imputed. They, they put upon him, they gave him the degree. That's the method of imputation. The title doctor is imputed or put upon someone without that person actually earning that privilege through his own efforts. Okay? So in God's plan of salvation, He has sent Jesus to live up to His perfect standard and actually earn the title of human perfection. You ask yourself, why did Jesus come and why, did, why didn't He just come for a day and then die? You know, he appears as a man, let Him go straight to the cross on Friday. No. He lived an entire life without sin. He earned it. No sin. He earned perfection as a human being by living a perfect life. Okay? He obeyed God's law exactly as it was written and meant to be obeyed. That perfection, that acceptable status is conferred or imputed or put upon us like an honorary degree when we are united to Jesus Christ in faith. We can't earn it because it is imputed upon us. In Romans chapter 3 verses 19 to 24 Paul explains this idea. He says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God because by the works of the law, perfect obedience, no flesh will be justified in His sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So Paul is saying God's standard, His law speaks to everyone. The principle of law, that absolute standard, which is God's law, will be what will, what will judge all men. The Jews had a special revelation of God's standard through Moses, but everyone has had some form of exposure uh, to it, either through the creation, which is an outward revelation, or through conscience, which is an inward revelation. So the purpose of giving the law was not only to establish a standard, it was also to show men that their true condition was as sinners. Uh, let me give you another example. Just as a thermometer does not produce heat or cold, but only measures it, God's law did not produce good or bad. It simply measured the sinfulness of man and exposed it for judgment. See the, the thing? A lot of people think that the law will create 
righteousness in me. No, it wasn't designed for that. Just like the thermostat, you know, the thermometer outside, it doesn't, it doesn't produce the heat, it doesn't produce the cold. It only tells you how hot or cold it is. Well, the law doesn't produce righteousness in anybody. It only tells you how good or bad you are. Then in verse 21 he says, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So God has demonstrated in a person, not just a written set of rules, what is acceptable and perfect. When this person was compared to the standard, he was found perfect. Of course, we know who he's talking about here, right? Verse 22 to 24. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. So this quality of perfection, acceptability, some call it righteousness, is now imputed, is now uh, 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 conferred or transferred upon all of those who believe in Jesus. And this action of imputing Christ's perfection is done by God freely as a demonstration of His kindness. He says to the world, you want to see how kind I am? I'll show you how kind I am. I'm going to send Jesus to live up to the law for you and then I will impute his perfection onto you and I'm going to give that to you freely based on your faith in Him. That's how good I am. That's what Paul is saying here. This is the only method that a person can be justified or made acceptable before God. There is no other method. This is the only method. So when somebody says to you, oh you think you're the only one going to heaven? No, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is there is only one way to go to heaven. And that's if you're justified through Christ. That's the only way. You can be the best Muslim in the world. This will not justify you before God. You can be the most, uh, 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 the most ascetic uh, Buddhist you know, monk living up in a mountain. Uh, no sex, no food, just water and you know, locusts for your whole life. That will not justify you before God. So the doctrine of justification explains how God's plan of salvation solves the problem of making men who are helplessly trapped in the imperfection of sin, how God makes them perfect and acceptable again through Jesus Christ. This is what we mean when we say we are justified. It means we're made acceptable to God's standard. How? Through faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, His perfection is imputed to us when we're united to Him by faith. Now watch. Paul combines the moment with the method in Galatians chapter 3 verse 26 and 27. He says, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. That's the method. That's the method. You are all sons of God, meaning you're acceptable. How? through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the method. And then he says, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. That's the moment. That's the moment. So we are united to Christ by faith at the moment of baptism. We are justified or made acceptable when through the method of imputation God clothes us with Christ's perfection 
in baptism. This is the heart and soul of the gospel. Okay, so the seven sub-doctrines, okay, in 15 words or less, God knew believers would become His acceptable children through Christ.